Well, great to be back with you after five weeks of a writing sabbatical. Uh, if you're fairly new here, you should know the elders very kindly give me one month every summer for a writing block. So last summer I worked on a little Philippians book, and this summer was able to uh, finish up my dissertation, uh, at least send it off anyway. And, and um, so that's what I've been doing. I haven't been loafing. Uh, no, no, don't, don't clap. I just wanted to make sure you knew I wasn't taking five weeks vacation off and then more vacation later or something like that. Thanks to Trent for his great work in the book of Job over the last five weeks. I'm sure you were fed as I was. I was encouraged and strengthened by God's goodness to us. Today, Trent is preaching at Crossroads Church here in town. Justin Edgar pastors that church and Trent's filling in for him today. Justin Edgar used to be the youth minister at Desert Springs Church before I got here. Now he's in town pastoring another church and a good buddy and dear friend and Trent's there preaching for them today. Today we begin a short series that I hope will complement the last five weeks in Job. We'll take four to five weeks or so to talk about the theme of suffering in the book of 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. Now why do this? Why suffering after the book of Job, which was all about suffering? Well, it's certainly not because I want to fix something that Trent said or or because he didn't say something that he should have said in preaching the book of Job, not at all. But it is because the Bible tells us more about suffering than just what we find in the book of Job. The book of Job is certainly an important book for suffering saints, but it's not the only word on suffering in the Bible. So the Psalms, for instance, tell us all kinds of things about suffering and comfort. And the New Testament has passages here and there and everywhere, really, on the reasons for suffering, the purposes in suffering, what to think about in suffering, how to feel, and what to do, and all that. Several of those New Testament passages on suffering are in the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is a book that deals with suffering. It defends suffering, we could say. It defends it and explains it. And the book of Job did that too. The book of Job defended suffering, really, and and explained it in certain ways. 2 Corinthians defends suffering, but explains it in different ways. In a sense, it takes us further. It stands on the shoulders of Job and other parts of the Bible and gives us something like a suffering 2.0. We could call the series... Treasure in jars of clay. That's a line from 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Chapter 4, verse 7 says, We have this treasure, that is the gospel, in jars of clay, fragile jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We'll get to 2 Corinthians 4, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks. But let's today turn to 2 Corinthians 1. And we'll study verses 3 to 11. According to Kent Hughes, longtime pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, now retired, author of many commentaries, including one on 2 Corinthians. According to Kent Hughes, this passage which we're going to look at today is the Bible's greatest text on comfort. I know that's a subjective assessment, but... Nevertheless, it should grab our attention. Kent Hughes, who wrote a commentary on this, says this is the Bible's greatest text on comfort. 
Let's start in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in your sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You must help us by pray, by prayer. So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. I want us to consider five parts to this passage this morning. We'll take the first four pretty slowly. They're densely packed in the earlier verses we read of this passage. And then we'll cruise through the rest of the passage They sort of follow a who, what, why, and how line of thinking. So in addition to what you have on your sermon notes page, you might want to add those kind of questions preceding each point. This first one is a a who of the passage. The who of the passage, not that band from England. It's actually God. The who of the passage is the God of all comfort. That's number one. We see it in verse 3. The God of all comfort. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Now get this, Paul talks about comfort more than any other scriptural author. Because he talks about suffering more than any other scriptural author. And he talks about suffering and comfort more in 2 Corinthians than he does anywhere else in his writings. And he talks about suffering and comfort more densely in these verses, which we'll look at today, than any other part of 2 Corinthians. You might have noticed the word comfort pops up a lot in the verses we read. A form of it, comfort or comforter, comforting, all that kind of take on the word, ten times total. In five verses alone, ten times, a form of the word comfort appears in verses 3 through 7. But Paul begins with benediction. That's what the word blessed means. It really means praise. It means a doxology is beginning here. He begins with praise to God for the comfort that is rooted 
in God himself. He is the God of all comfort. He's the Father of mercies. It's who he is. It's what he does. He shows mercy. He gives comfort. He loves to do it. And he's really good at it. It starts with God. Getting suffering right starts with God. Getting comfort right starts with God. It starts with getting God right. That means that, according to this passage and elsewhere in the Bible, God is not a cruel and sadistic God. But neither is his world a Pollyanna kind of world. It's a rough and tumble sort of world. There's suffering in it, and yet he himself is not harsh, but compassionate and kind and merciful and full of comfort. There's no other source for true comfort, according to verse 3. That's really what Paul is saying here. He is the God of all comforts. All comforts out there that are true comforts and lasting comforts and real and spiritual comforts. Well, he's the one behind it. He's the one who sends it. There is no other source for true comfort than God. There is no true and lasting comfort apart from God. We might try to pursue other comforts. We do. We all do, even Christians, don't we? When suffering comes, maybe we deal with our suffering and pursue comfort with denial, ignore the suffering that's going on, maybe distraction. Entertain ourselves to death, amuse ourselves to death, so that we don't have to realize that we're in that comfort, discomfort rather. Maybe we deal with our, our suffering with, with doing. You, you distract yourselves not with entertainment, maybe with, with doing, accomplishing, or other pleasures. Maybe with complaint, maybe with rage, maybe with positive thinking. Maybe with just the hope that it will cease someday. Maybe by pursuing the soothers of this age. Or instead, let us pursue the God of all comfort, the Father of mercies. It's who he is. That's the who. Secondly, there's the what of the passage. The what He gives complete comfort, complete comfort, not half comfort or some comfort. Verse 4 says, he's the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction. Now, you got to know this. Comfort does not mean the absence of suffering here. Comfort assumes suffering, right? If a mom comforts her baby, her baby's crying. It needs comfort. And it may not mean that it, as soon as she begins to comfort that the, the pain stops or the crying ceases. It's not the absence of, of suffering. Instead, it's assumed that there's comfort in the midst of suffering. The word comfort here means to strengthen, to encourage, to stand by. And really, this is a hallmark of the New Covenant era. We shouldn't just think of this in general terms like 
God's good. He gives comfort. We need comfort. And the same as yesterday, today, and forever. It is true that God's comfort has always been a distinguishing mark of his presence with his people. But it is also true that when the Old Testament started to announce that a new covenant was coming, a new day would dawn, they described it in terms of a day of comfort. So Isaiah 40 to 66 is all about this new covenant that's to come, this new time that would dawn. And it begins, chapter 40, verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said in John 14 that even though he was going to go away from his disciples, he would give them another comforter, another helper, the Holy Spirit who will be with you always. So that's what Paul has in mind, I think, when he talks about God comforting us in all our affliction. It sounds exaggerated, doesn't it? He comforts us in all our affliction. It sounds like we're being sold a bill of goods here. It doesn't seem like that's a promise that really can get fulfilled, the sight of the new heaven and the new earth. But even if it doesn't seem like it, even if it may not feel like we're sufficiently comforted, we have to remember again that comfort here is not the absence of suffering, it's comfort in the midst of suffering. And I think that's where we might confuse things and doubt whether the Lord comforts us in all our affliction or can comfort us in all our affliction. Now how does God comfort us? A few different ways. One of the ways described in the Bible is that he gives in unexplainable supernatural comfort or peace. Philippians 4.7 talks about this. A peace that passes all understanding. A peace that doesn't make sense for the circumstances in which they're found. Related, the New Testament says he gives strength. James 1.5 says he gives wisdom in the midst of our trials. We're told that he reminds us of truth. He leads us in truth. Now the way God comforts us, more specifically, is through his word. He comforts us through his word. You see that all over the Bible, especially Psalm 119. He comforts us through prayer. You know, Philippians 4, 7 talks about a peace that passes all understanding. But the verse before it says, Be anxious for nothing, but instead... Pray, ask him. You can't do anything about the problem, but he can. Ask him and give thanks while you're at it. He comforts us through prayer. He comforts us through other people. Look over at chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. Here's where we see comfort from other people. Chapter 7, in the middle of verse 5, Paul says, We were afflicted at every turn. Fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast, he comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing and your mourning and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Paul's emissary, his disciple and right-hand man Titus, He came with a good report. His presence comforted Paul, and his report about the Corinthians 
comforted Paul. Now, we'll talk in just a minute about how God uses people for comfort. We'll talk about that some more. But let's pause here and remember that we have a responsibility to avail ourselves to God's comfort. 2 Corinthians 1 doesn't say this, but obviously it assumes this. It isn't telling us to wait for God to zap us with peace and comfort. No doubt Paul assumes that we are to avail ourselves to the resources God has given us, like his word, and like prayer, and like his presence. Perhaps it was right for Job to say, where can I go to hear from you? Job didn't have the Bible. He had some information about God, but not what we have We cannot say what Job said, where can I go to hear from you? We have more answers. We have God's answer to Job. We have the Psalms. We have 2 Corinthians here. We have countless passages that make sense of our suffering and offer promises and give comfort. And so we must go to the word and we must recalibrate our thinking in the midst of suffering, which which is disorienting, isn't it? It's the Bermuda Triangle. It messes the magnetic field up and the compass spins all about. We must preach to ourselves. And yes, we know that sometimes God graciously zaps us with peace and comfort. It's a peace that passes all understanding. And yet we cannot be presumptuous. The Bible shows us to pray for comfort. The Bible shows us how the word comforts us. The Bible gives us examples of preaching to ourselves, preaching to our own doubts and to our own fears and walking ourselves out of the miry pit. The Bible gives us testimony, like in Psalm 131, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. We need to do that. So do not say in your discomfort, God will not comfort me. I've waited and waited and waited and he will not comfort me. Do not say that, especially if you're, going, if you're not going to those wells of comfort in the Bible and his presence and his people. Let's talk about his people as we move on to this third point here. It's a why question. Why? We saw he gives... Complete comfort. Why does he give complete comfort? Because he gives conduit comfort. It's the best I could come up with. Look at verse 4. He comforts us in all our afflictions so that, there's the why, we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's conduit comfort. Like electricity, comfort can flow from God through a human being to another human being. You ever done that little experiment where, you know, you hold hands in a circle and someone puts their hand on some sort of electrical current, current and, and it flows right through the people. The person at the end gets a big shock or their hair stands up or something. The point of the experiment is obvious to all who are watching that the current is passing through people when they're connected. Well, similarly, God gives conduit comfort to us in our suffering. 
which means he doesn't just give commensurate comfort. Forget the electrical charge that's going through the people for a second. I realize that doesn't grow as it goes through each person. But, but with God's comfort, it, it does. It's more than you need in the midst of your trial. It's not just commensurate for the trial that you're in. That's true. And that's glorious. That's good news. Whatever kind of trial you have right now, God has available to you enough grace for you to get through it. And more and more he has left over. You can think of it like bookkeeping, like a ledger with uh, two columns. One column is the suffering tally. Another column is comfort. Even in one specific trial, the specific sufferings can be many. They're down the list and down the list. And each one has their own weight. Some are small and some are great. But when you add up everything that's in the suffering column and everything that's in the comfort column, you don't just break even. You come out ahead with extra comfort. Those of you who do the books at your business, maybe you have a a small budget line for your department that you manage, or maybe you just balance the checkbook in your home. Isn't it a great thing when you do the calculation at the end of the month and you say, we came out ahead. It's always a good thing. You can't take that for granted. We came out ahead. That's a good thing. Yeah, and we come out ahead with God's comfort in the midst of our suffering. Romans 8.28 is a well-known verse about suffering. It gives us that strong and beautiful encouragement that all things are being worked by God together for our good. That is so encouraging. And yet, 2 Corinthians 1 says more than that. Again, it's 2.0, you could say. It's not just for your good, it's for others' good. Your suffering is not just for your good, it is for others. Suffering makes us stronger, and hence we're better equipped to minister to those who are suffering. As we suffer various trials, we have more empathy and more clarity about ministering to those in those same trials. Our affliction should signal for us, this is an assignment, on assignment from God, Yes, our assignment in suffering is finding comfort for ourselves. Indeed it is. Don't forget that. We've got to learn to suffer well and learn to suffer better. But also there's that assignment of comforting others. When we suffer, God is preparing us for an abundance of comfort with which we will use, Lord willing, to comfort others who are also that's in suffering. Our suffering and comfort then are not end roads, but they're means to something else. Put it this way, I don't have the right to waste the gift of God's comfort completely on myself. It's like a paycheck. I get a paycheck from Desert Springs Church twice a month. Can you imagine if I spent one of those paychecks completely on me. I can't spend it on myself. I I give some to the church. I give some to, to missionaries. Most of it goes to the basic needs of my family. I might, 
in a given month be able to buy a t-shirt for myself? Probably not. I'll have to check with my wife. (laughs) That paycheck is earmarked already. The whole design of that paycheck has others in mind. We family men can't fathom the, 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 the idea of taking our paycheck and cashing it and then going and spending it frivolously on whatever entertains us. At least hopefully. But that's kind of what I do whenever I'm suffering and getting God's comfort and living in a silo of self licking my own wounds. And I do it all the time. I do it all the time. I'm really good at it. I'm really good at suffering and thinking about my suffering. It's so easy, isn't it? I don't think I'm alone. I think that's the natural reaction to suffering, to turn inward. It's almost like a punch in the gut that makes you bend over. Suffering makes us turn in on ourselves if we're, if we're not walking in the spirit, if we're not seeking the mind of Christ. Or, or maybe we don't turn in on ourselves so much, but if we turn outward, isn't it easy to instead look outward with a natural reaction of resentment towards others who aren't suffering as much as we are? Look at him. He's blessed. I bet he doesn't read his Bible nearly as much as I do. How come he's like that? How come he gets that? Why did they get that? Why me? Maybe we can think about others in the midst of our suffering and yet only wonder why they don't care about us and our suffering, why they aren't asking us about how we're doing, why they aren't seeking to bring some some healing and care to our wounds. Well, this, this passage calls us to something far greater than those. And the passage also promises that God will give us enough strength and comfort and peace to take our eyes off of ourselves and to look around and see needs around us. Your suffering and his grace are assignments, conduits of his grace to those who are in need. Even if those in suffering have suffering less than yours. Even if their suffering is greater than yours. And even if their suffering is different than yours. Let me unpack those. You see, we're supposed to be conduits of grace to those who are suffering, even if their suffering is less than ours, even if their suffering is greater than ours, and even if their suffering is of a different kind than ours. I was struck this week with Paul's emphasis, at least in these earlier verses of chapter 1, his emphasis not on suffering, but on the comfort of the equation. He emphasizes comfort, not suffering. In other words, I think he's not encouraging us here to merely commiserate with others of like suffering. I don't think Paul is calling me, for instance, to find other people in the church who get migraines and then just say to them, man, aren't migraines the worst? How many do you get? What medicine have you tried? When did you start getting them? Do you see spots? Yeah, sucks, doesn't it? That's it. That's that's just commiserating. And the world does that beautifully. There's nothing supernatural about that. It can find, uh, it can feel like a bit of comfort for a bit, but it's not the proactive and more positive thing that Paul's talking about here, which is focused on divine spiritual comfort. 
He's not saying commiserate with like sufferers. He's saying give my comfort to them. Whatever comfort you got, you got some small thing from his word. Trust in him. So you're trying to trust in him. That's all you got to share with someone else. Then share it and tell them, trust in him. I've been trying to trust in him. Trust in him. It says in the Psalms again and again, trust in him. This also implies, I think, that my suffering doesn't have to be of the same kind as yours or same degree as yours in order for me to comfort you. We know that it's experientially true that there is something comforting about being with and hearing with and even praying with someone who knows your kind of suffering. You've got cancer, they had cancer. You lost a child, they lost a child. We know that that can be comforting. There is something indeed about that that is beneficial. And I don't want to discourage like sufferers from getting together, but I do want to humbly point out that it is not in 2 Corinthians 1. That's not what Paul is saying. Notice, as you look at the words in verses 3 and 4 here, he's never that specific. He doesn't talk about kinds of suffering or sources of suffering. He simply talks about sufferers becoming comforters. Sufferers in general should become comforters in general. And there are implications for that in both directions. Potential comforters should feel liberated to comfort those who have suffered differently and more greatly than they have. They should do it humbly, yes. They should recognize they don't know what the other person's going through, yes. But they should comfort. And sufferers should receive well-meaning comfort from those who haven't suffered as much or with the same kind of suffering that they have. So whether it's with silent presence, being with someone and saying nothing, just shaking your head, like Romans says, weep with those who weep. Or it's patient listening as they pour out their heart and share their greatest burdens and needs with you. Or maybe it's with a word of truth. Maybe it's with a a verse of the Bible or a half a verse of the Bible. Or maybe you don't have one of those in the forefront of your mind. And so you open your Bible to the Psalms and you read a Psalm that you know is of encouragement. Maybe it's with prayer. Maybe any of these would come simply through an email or a note or in person or over the phone or with text. Here's the point. It doesn't have to be complicated or sophisticated. You probably won't feel adequate for it before or after. Pastors don't feel adequate to give counsel, either before they're about to give it or after. It seems like there's so much more that could be said. It seems like there's something better that could have been said or said better. Uh, It's hard. None of us feel adequate for this task. But it's something we should all try to improve upon, especially the more you do it. My first pastoral hospital visit at the ripe age of 21 went like this. I showed up and visited for a little while with this couple from church. They didn't know me. I didn't know them. We got to know each other a bit. And I knew that this lady in the hospital had had various diseases and illnesses. They couldn't even figure out some of them. And, and so I said, so how's it looking? 
And the man said, well, it looks like she gets to go home. It looks like she's going to be going home today. And he said it kind of really seriously, actually. And, and I stupidly assumed he meant heaven. And so I started preaching about heaven. You know, uh, the Lord went away to prepare a place for us. And he's there now and to, to be out of the bodies, be present with the Lord. And I, I'm preaching to him. And I can see him looking sort of odd and, and confused and and I'm assuming this guy's never had a real pastoral visit like this. Everyone else has just come and read Bible verses or patted the head and prayed and left. And this man's never really had a strong pastor in the hospital with him. And then he said, of course, no, uh, uh, thanks, but uh, she's going to be going to our house today. Okay. I have no idea what happened after that. I was, I'm sure, blacked out at that point. But uh, <laughs> you should try to improve your counsel, especially the more you do it. So let's review the logic of verse 4. We get God's comfort through others. We give God's comfort to others. We give God's comfort to others, even in our suffering. And we give God's comfort to others especially in and through our suffering. Number four, the how. The how is the crux of comfort. We see it in verse five. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now what does Paul mean here when he says we share in Christ's Sufferings. None of us have been crucified. What does he mean? Well, there are basically two views on this, and I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. In fact, I think Paul means both of these. He often does double-meaning kind of things. He means both this, that we share in Christ's redemptive, substitutionary sufferings on the cross as recipients of his grace. We share in the benefits of his suffering for us and for our salvation. And he also means that we share in the path of his sufferings as we take up his cross and we follow him. In other words, we identify with him. We represent him to the world and hence at times we suffer for him. And as we suffer for him, there's a sense in which because we're in union with him that we suffer with him. This is what Paul talks about in Chapter 4 of this book. Look over. Chapter 4. In verse 10, he says he's always carrying in his body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And just as the suffering is twofold, so it's Jesus' death for us and Jesus' example for us. So the comfort that comes from Jesus is also twofold. We share in Christ's sacrificial suffering and receive that saving comfort. And as we identify with him and suffer for him, we're comforted through that identification, through that privilege of getting what he got. We're even comforted by it. Now, it's the first of those 
that must precede the other. That's so important for us to note. The first of those, Christ's sacrificial suffering for us as a means of grace, is the logical and chronological starting point. Meaning there is no sense of comfort, daily comfort in the midst of my ups and downs and my trials here and there. There's no comfort like that unless I have saving eternal comfort that comes through the cross of Christ on my behalf. God is not interested simply in soothing your worries. He's interested in saving you to the uttermost. And so that means you must start to recognize, if you haven't yet, that you're a sinner. You're in need of grace, forgiveness, and mercy. You're in need of God showing his love towards you to this extent, that Jesus died in your place. That he sent his son to die in the place of sinners. That whoever would believe and trust and receive it would have eternal grace and eternal comfort. We pray you'd know that. We pray you'd believe that. If you haven't yet, we pray you'd keep seeking, you'd think, you'd pray, you'd ask him to reveal that saving eternal comfort that comes to the cross of Christ and that you wouldn't get the cart before the horse and think that you being here today or you doing a little bit of Bible or occasional praying or keeping your nose clean a little bit more than you did last week is going to give you some sort of comfort in your heart or comfort in your sorrows it won't not apart from his saving grace seek him today and when we have that saving saving grace then we have all kinds of promises that go with it and promises like this of his comfort the heidelberg catechism written in the mid 1500s has this as its first question what is your only comfort in life in death? It's funny because it says only comfort in life in death, and then it lists a bunch of things. Why does it do that? Because these are all a package deal for those who are in Christ. Here's my only comfort in life and death, according to the Heidelberg Catechism, which I think is just simply interpreting the Bible and interpreting it correctly. That I am not my own but belong with body and soul, both life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That is my only comfort in life and in death. All that. Is it yours? Is God the only source, ultimate source of comfort in this world? The crux of our comfort is the cross as both a payment for our sins and a path for us to follow. Suffering produces comfort. And by the way, that doesn't mean that we should go looking for suffering. We shouldn't glorify suffering. Some of the early church fathers did this. They saw martyrdom as the most noble death any Christian could have, and so they went looking for it. <laughs> Who goes looking for martyrdom except those guys and, and terrorists and others? But, but that's not what Paul is saying here. 
Paul's not saying seek suffering and seek martyrdom, no. But he is saying that God uses suffering. He is saying that suffering does not signal his lack of blessing, but instead his faithfulness and goodness to use what hurts for our good. Suffering is how we get saving comfort. Jesus suffered for us. Suffering for Christ also brings comfort. We identify with him. And like Christ, we, when we suffer, receive comfort and we give comfort to those who are also suffering. Now, lastly, it's really not a who, what, why, when kind of question. It's just this. The apostolic missionary model. The rest of these verses, verses 6 through 11, tell us about an apostolic missionary model related to all this. Now, I have to give you some background. I don't like to do this kind of thing later in a sermon, but there's no way around it. Verses 6 through 11 get into something that's really the heart of the letter of 2 Corinthians. It's really the reason why Paul picked up pen and wrote these words down in 2 Corinthians. You have to know that New Testament letters like this were usually written with a problem in mind. Usually the, the, the author picked up pen because there was a problem that needed fixing on the other end. Well, some scholars, in fact, treat the earlier verses we were just looking at, verses 3, 4, and 5, in the same light. And, and here's the light I'm talking about. Here's the backdrop to 2 Corinthians. Paul spent more time in Corinth than he did any other church-planting city. Paul also sent his emissaries like Timothy and Titus there more than any other of his church-plant cities. But since he was there last, uh, some super apostles is what he calls them. I don't know if these guys called themselves super apostles. (laughs) That'd be funny, but... uh, But he says these super apostles have apparently come into Corinth and they've started to badmouth Paul because they're super apostles. They're all about the show. They're all about the power. They're all about the wisdom, right? In in Paul, they say, oh, he suffers so much, he must not be blessed. He's so weak and frail. History tells us he was a rather short and not so handsome kind of man. Well, he must not be blessed the Lord. He doesn't have strength and power like we do. They said that Paul, oh, he's so impressive in his letters, but when he shows up in person, he is so unimpressive. And the Corinthians bought it. They bought it. Their spiritual father was thrown under the bus. So Paul writes 2 Corinthians with a broken heart. He's a rejected apostle. And so he writes to defend his apostleship and correct their thinking about suffering, what it means. He writes to tell them that his suffering as an apostle, missionary, far from being a mark of his uselessness, is actually the means by which they've been saved. If he didn't suffer in his travels to and fro, they would not have the gospel. They would not be saved. His suffering is a means of their comfort. That's for sure what Paul is beginning to articulate by verse 6 in chapter 1. 
As I started to say, some scholars also think that Paul was talking about that in verses 3 and 4 and 5. And so when he talks about who comforts us in our affliction, so that we, he just means Paul in company. And so they don't want to personalize this too much or generalize it too much for every Christian. I don't think that's right, though. I think early on, Paul was talking about general Christian principles, that suffering breeds comfort and comfort should breed other comforts to others. That's a general principle. And so we were right to talk about it, I think, in terms of how it applies to us and maybe even individualize it in a sense. But by verse 6, he's now talking about the beef, you could say, the beef between Paul and the Corinthians. Now he's going to say, He's going to say that he is a true apostle, not despite his suffering, but because of his suffering. What he's really trying to say here, without saying it, is that in the Guinness Book of World Sufferers, Jesus was number one, and Paul was number two. He was probably number two. So he's an encouragement for that general principle of suffering, getting comfort, and giving comfort. And he's also a model to frontline missionaries, maybe even to pastors in their ministry and in their sacrifice. Let me list some things as we read the the verses at the end here. You see in verse 6, there's sacrificial suffering. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we're comforted, it's for your comfort. Paul has been a conduit of comfort to the Corinthians. As they've been comforted, they got that from Paul, not from the super apostles. He sacrificed much. In the second half of verse 6, you see shared suffering. It's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know is that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Keep sharing in this thing, in other words. Keep sharing in the ministry. Keep partnering in the gospel, in the gospel work, in the gospel sending work. He talks about severe suffering, at least in Paul's case, probably not the Corinthians' case. Whatever suffering they had seems mild compared to Paul's suffering. In fact, any suffering seems mild compared to Paul's suffering. He says in verse 8, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, instead of hiding the severity of his suffering, we want you to be aware of the affliction, the affliction we experienced in Asia. We don't know what that was, but he talks about it being in very severe sort of affliction. He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That doesn't mean he wanted to die. It means he thought death was as good as done. Indeed, he says in verse 9, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. This could be a judicial sentence of death. Whatever it means, it means he thought death was on the brink. It was here. Uh, The grim reaper had shown up. Whatever you want to call it. He, He thought this suffering was right to the point of death, and hence it was beyond his strength. It's like a loaded-down mule that crashes and crumbles under the weight that's on its back. That's what Paul is picturing here about the severity of his suffering. And then he talks about purposeful suffering. God did this. He brought him to the brink of death and loaded him like a mule that could walk no more. Verse 9, that was to make us 
rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Just like he'll say in chapter 4, verse 7, right? It's God wanting to show his strength in us. That power that doesn't belong to us, but, but to God. It was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Friend, this truth is not just for Paul. It's for every suffering. It's for every trial. If you have no other explanation for your suffering than this, Christian, you have this explanation. God is putting you through this that you might not rely on yourselves, but instead on the one who can raise the dead. Why do you say raise the dead here? Well, because Paul thought, I'm on the brink here. This is like Abraham and Isaac all over again. My only hope is that he can raise the dead. My only hope is in the resurrection at the end of the age. My only hope is that he will get us through eternally. He says it's a sure suffering. Verse 9, it's God who raises the dead, and he has in the past delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. Wait a minute, how do you know he will deliver us? Well, he says how he'll deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. See, that's not temporary deliverance. That's not tomorrow's deliverance. That's eternal deliverance. We've set our hope. That's the end of the age kind of language here. We've set our hope on the one who will appear at the end of time. It's prayerful suffering. You see verse 11? You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Prayer. He calls the Corinthians to participate in his suffering and in his mission by praying, by praying for him and his work and for God to bless that work. And so he ends with praise, really. Praise God for suffering. Notice he says in verse 11, you must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks, so that the gospel spreads and others join us in rejoicing, in praising God who gives, he gives this deliverance. And isn't that right back where we started? Verse 3 began, blessed be doxology, praise to the Lord. Blessed be the God who is comfort, the Father of mercies. Praise him for who he is and for what he does. And then at the end, he comes back, pray, pray for me, pray for our work that others would join in giving thanks, in giving praise, in blessing God, in knowing his comfort. Imagine a mother whose baby is Never, ever, ever sick. Never in need. Has never cried once. Most moms, if given the choice, would, would select that, I think. Right? For the sake of the baby, for the sake of their own ears, their own sanity. They would select a, a, a sick-free baby. A, a problem-free baby. But in such an imaginary world... There are certain motherly instincts and characteristics that that unneedy baby would never get to see, at least. They might hear about it one day. They might know someday that, that mom is, is caring and tender and compassionate. 
But if there are no tears to wipe, and if there is no restlessness to console, and if there are no boo-boos to kiss, there is a part of that mom that the baby never experiences. Again, no mom is glad that her baby is hurting, no good mom, so that she can comfort that baby. But let's not forget that the Bible tells us everywhere that God is intent to show us who he is and what he's like and what he's up to. And he wants to show forth the, the full display of his character and his attributes and his ways. He wants to show us everything that he is. And he will wipe away tears. He will hold us. He will care for us. He will carry us on his wings. He does it for his glory, for his fame, for his name. And that's what we've been seeing in the book of Job over the last five weeks, that Job's suffering was first and foremost about God's testimony before Satan's charge. And God held his testimony sure before Satan. So hear this. Blessed be the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we can comfort others who are also in affliction with the same comfort that God gave us. So let us trust that when affliction comes, it is to make us rely not on ourselves, but on a God who raises the dead. And let us set our hope that he will deliver us again in that last day. And let us help his cause with prayer. Let us pray for those who suffer for the cause of Christ. Let us pray for our own missionaries who may someday suffer for the cause of Christ so that many will give thanks and praise to our God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your love and compassion and care. We thank you for your goodness shown to us in Jesus. We thank you that in his suffering there is our comfort. We thank you that in his suffering and through the sufferings of others that minister to us, there is more than enough comfort for us to get through whatever we're going through. You will not bring us through more than we can bear, but you will make a, an escape for temptation. We thank you for your superabundant grace and pray that you would help us to be ministers of that grace to others. Help us, Lord, to suffer with an eye on the horizon and all around us to those who are also in need. Help us, Lord, to get outside of ourselves and help us to sacrifice like Jesus sacrificed. You've given us enough comfort to do that. And Lord, ultimately, we thank you for that mission that you've given us and you've given missionaries. And it started with apostles long ago and today it still spreads in this world. We pray for those who suffer severely, unlike we do here. We pray for those who suffer not just in general, but suffer for the cause of Christ directly. For those who feel as though the sentence of death is right over their heads right now, would you give grace? Would you, Lord, sustain them? Would you keep the testimony of the gospel firm in their mouth? For your namesake, amen.